Most people say they would like to die quietly at home. But overly aggressive medical advice, coupled with an unrealistic sense of invincibility, results in the majority of elderly patients misguidedly dying in institutions while undergoing painful procedures instead of having a better and more peaceful death they desired. The path of least resistance is to keep treating patients even though the path of compassion uh, would be to take more time counseling them. Dr. Samuel Harrington, MD, is the author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. In this book, he argues the case for taking a clear-eyed yet compassionate view towards the end of life. I think that the, the issue of control is the single most important issue or attribute of a good death. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. So the family has to know what uh, the patient thinks about their end-of-life choices. This is where you have to have the vision that I mentioned or some understanding of your disease or a general understanding outlining the wishes you want your your family to appreciate about you when you are approaching the end of your life. So most people avoid that conversation as much as possible because it's just nobody wants to talk about the end of their life. My father, who was quite upfront about living and dying, didn't want to talk about it. I'm comparatively used to it and was able to do that as a professional with other with patients but found it difficult with my father but it's just mandatory that people blunder into it and um, promote it because the alternative is so bad uh, letting the medical system uh, move you forward uh, on their test and treat pathway and end up with uh, a medicalized death. Dr. Samuel Harrington is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Wisconsin Medical School. Professionally, he concentrated his practice at Sibley Memorial Hospital, and he also served on the board of a nonprofit hospice in Washington, D.C. Yes, I'm a bit of a contrarian, especially among clinicians and non-academicians. And I, I'm not an academic. I'm a purely clinical physician who uh, felt that the path of least resistance is to keep treating patients even though the path of compassion uh, would be to take more time counseling them. But because the system is built for um, treatment and aggressive treatment uh, as opposed to counseling and comfort, uh, I, I became I'm, I have become somewhat uh, of a contrarian. He's the author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. In this book, Dr. Harrington outlines specific active and passive steps that older patients and their health care proxies can take to ensure loved ones pass their last days comfortably at home or in hospice when further aggressive care is inappropriate. Welcome, Dr. Harrington, to Progressive Spirit. Uh, thank you, John, for having me. Please call me Sam. All right. Thank you, Sam. Uh, how did you come to decide to write this book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, at this time? Well, toward the end of my medical practice, I have witnessed too many patients uh, of an, in, in advanced age die 
medicalized deaths or deaths that involve too much technology, uh, too much uh, pain and suffering, which struck me as inappropriate for the circumstances. And, and so I wrote a book or I fancied a book trying to empower elderly people to make better decisions. Um, I will say that that evolved, my desire to do that evolved over my 35 years of training and practice because I initially went into um, medicine seeking technical skills as a gastroenterologist and after 35 years having observed my parents age from middle age to old age then dwindle and die and having observed um, medicine evolve from a healing art um, to a sort of commercialized enterprise with lots of technology applied in a sort of a juggernaut way, I came to realize that my technical skills were not nearly as important at the end of a long life as, as compassionate care, and by that I mean nursing care and emotional support when um, elderly patients were approaching death. Would you say that where you are now is a bit unusual for the established medical community? Um, as I'm reading your book, it seemed to say that the, the medical industrial complex, so to speak, is kind of uh, always uh, seeks a sort of a sense of, of immortality. We, we can cure anything with technology. And of course, that, we know that isn't exactly true, but it feels that way somehow. Is, is, are you uh, somewhat of a, a, a leading edge on this movement? I wouldn't describe myself as the leading edge, but I am a little bit on a leading edge. Um, yes, I'm a bit of a contrarian, especially among clinicians and non-academicians. And I, I'm not an academic. I'm a purely clinical physician who uh, felt that uh, the path of least resistance is to keep treating patients, even though the path of compassion uh, would be to take more time counseling them. But because the system is built for um, treatment and aggressive treatment, uh, as opposed to counseling and comfort, uh, I, I, became, I'm, I have become somewhat uh, of a contrarian. It used to be, would we say, I'm certainly a century ago, maybe more recent than that, if someone was diagnosed with cancer, the, the doctor would say, well, it's time to get your affairs in order. Um, is there a sense in which uh, that was, for some folks, a good answer even today? Uh, yes, I, I truly believe it is. Uh, I remember distinctly, this is not a patient from the book, but I was taking, I, I consulted with a very well-known judge in Washington, D.C., and diagnosed um, liver cancer. And he asked me what or what I would tell him if he were my father. And I said, I would tell my father to go home and put his affairs in order. And the judge said, OK, that's what I'll do. And I said, wait a minute, uh, you're not my father. You, in fact, have to have a couple more tests to prove that I'm right. Uh, but after that, you should go home and put your affairs in order. So I think we modern medicine doesn't apply the mother test or the father test quite enough. Now, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but there's a person you quote in your book who set an arbitrary age of, at 75, I will no longer take aggressive, only, only palliative care uh, from that point. And uh, you, in your book, you say, well, that, that's too arbitrary, but there's a sense in which he's on the right track. Can, can you explain that? Oh, certainly. He's Ezekiel Emanuel, a leading uh, thinker in uh, a variety of medical ethics issues and areas. What you're really asking me is when is sort of what is old age yeah. and how do we define that? And of course, you cannot be completely arbitrary about that, shouldn't be, because we all age at different um, speeds. And some of us will be 90 before we're physically old and some of us will be physically old and uh, at 60. Some authors describe 65-year-olds as young old and 75-year-olds as old and 85-year-olds as old old. 
but I think that we we should think of age as a combination of three things: uh, a numerical number, uh, an understanding of the chronic illness that we're dealing with, and our ability to take care of ourselves, uh, which some people call performance status and some people subdivide into activities of daily living, like being able to bathe ourselves or, um, or feed ourselves or dress ourselves. So I think a person should think of old age as the zone where uh, an advancing number a progressive illness getting progressively worse, such as congestive heart failure, for example, and declining performance status uh, sort of intersect. And where those intersect, where we are getting sicker, getting weaker, and getting older, that is where we have to, everybody has to choose their own zone, but that is where one should say to themselves, okay, I am now going to take old age into consideration when I uh, look at the risk-benefit analysis of this next treatment that's being recommended. I have to take old age into the equation because I don't want to do something that is going to either shorten my life expectancy or make the quality of my life much worse without the promise of really improved quality and prolonged life. So that is where old age fits in. Can you give, um, you have a few concrete examples uh, in your book. Um, can you provide one for us? What, what might be a, a good example of, say, someone on that edge and, and what choices might be before them? Well, uh, again, it sort of, it, it varies from decade to decade. But uh, if I were 65 and I were suffering from advanced congestive heart failure, I would say to myself, uh, old age is a factor. If I were 75 and I, I had mild chronic illness, but I wasn't able to feed myself or transfer from bed to chair or dress myself, I would say old age is a factor. And if I'm lucky enough to get to be 85 um, in good health, living independently, but I need help around the house to do housework and if I slipped and fell to the floor, I, I'm unable to get up off the floor by myself. I think that it would be wise to consider old age in, in that equation. So those are some concrete examples that are uh, subject to a lot of debate, I'm sure. Um, but the, one of the examples I use in the book is the example of a 70-year-old man with congestive heart failure who is unable to take care of himself in the form of bathing or eating, had a stroke, and has had multiple hospitalizations for heart failure in the last year. Well, if you've had four hospitalizations under those circumstances, then your median life expectancy is six months. But it would be very rare for a physician to look at a patient and say that, although the patient I'm thinking of in the book is one with whom I had that conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's the point, isn't it, in some respects, because your book is really about empowering people to really make their own decisions and, and knowing that they just can't quite, because of the system as it's set up, trust the medical professional, perhaps, to offer another alternative rather than aggressive treatment. Uh, I mean, that, that's the focus of your book, is that right, to really make people aware uh, of the facts, of things like life expectancy, of things that what chronic disease happens, what are the options if you take this medical aggressive uh, action or if you take more of a palliative care action. Um, is, is that right? Is that, is that the uh, emphasis here? That is one of the, that is a, a broad look at the emphases, yes. I do want to empower patients to understand they can address, uh, they can learn about their disease, they can address prognosis, they can um, uh, make better decisions. They don't have to make the decisions I want them to make, but I think that they have to know more about the results of the decisions they will be making. Uh, I'm. Your question puts in mind my contrarian bent. We should look at most doctors as generals on a war footing. Uh, doctors and generals on a war footing want to address an illness with overwhelming force. And that is completely appropriate when dealing with a young, curable patient. But dying 
with old age, chronic illness and advanced old age are special circumstances. And under those circumstances, overwhelming force morphs into futile treatment. Uh, so it is inappropriate to apply that type of force at that advanced age, in my opinion. Feudal treatment, of course, is very hard to define because everybody has a different take on it. But I think it's educational to look at it in retrospect, or it's easier to see in retrospect in the sense that if a family member looks back on the death of their loved one and says, I wish we had not applied that aggressive treatment to my mother under those circumstances, then that is identifying futile care. And the trick is to foresee that and avoid it. And, and that's sort of the overarching point of the book, to help people try and foresee when treatment will become futile or is inappropriately excessive. My guest, if you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, is Dr. Samuel Harrington. His book is At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. I want to talk about the psychology of this or the spirituality of this for a second, because I think this is such a, a big part of it. On one level, I think people notice this, and, and so they jump, for example, in Oregon, uh, assisted, assisted death. Um, that law. And you don't really talk about that a lot in your book. But uh, it, I wonder if that is somewhat of an extreme solution for perhaps uh, a problem that we could have taken care of, that idea of being afraid of the pain of dying um, and, and wanting to have control. Is there, are there other ways of, of, in a sense, of having some control outside of that option? Or... or is that option a good option, too? Well, I don't address medical aid in dying extensively in my book because it is really not available to the majority of Americans, and I don't expect it to be available to in the majority of states during my lifetime. So I approach that particular issue as intellectually, yes, if it is available to you, you should be able to understand it, you should be able to think about it, and you should make a decision. One should make a decision about it, just like any other end-of-life decision. But as a physician and a person, uh, I'm somewhat ambivalent about it, because like most physicians, or many physicians, we, we are ambivalent because we've taken a, the oath to do no harm. And secondly, as I think about it, as it might have applied to my father, he did not live in a state where it was available. If it had been available to him, if he had the physical strength to go visit doctors and be certified as terminally ill and mentally competent, if he was physically able to self-administer as required the lethal dose of medications, I personally would have felt cheated in the sense that I would have felt there was a bit of impulsivity and prematurity to his decision, and I would have felt cheated out of quality time. That's my take on that particular issue. I think that the, the issue of control is the single most important issue or attribute of a good death, and I'll get into that in a second, but I want to say that medical aid in dying isn't the only way to control the decision-making at the end of life. What the vision of what a good death is, is highly variable. Everybody's going to look at it differently. But the qualities and attributes of a good death have been well studied. And control is the single most important one. Uh, comfort being second most important. Then closure, which is where spirituality might come in. Then affirmation, another potentially uh, area for spirituality, and trust. And so comfort, of course, is the absence of pain, but closure is the opportunity to reconcile with family and friends, uh, the ledgers of one's life. And affirmation is, uh, is where patients feel that their values are being considered by uh, the people around them and are being validated. And 
then trust is the environment in which people live and their caretakers supply their care. And if you reverse all those definitions, if you turn uh, control into helplessness and or discomfort into pain and closure into isolation and affirmation into denial and trust into frustration, then basically you've described dying in an intensive care unit. So the single most important thing that I emphasize in the book, I think, is taking control by deciding where to die and when to go home. The majority of elderly patients would prefer to die at home as comfortably as possible at peace, hence the title of the book. It is fundamental to understand that if you want to die at home, you have to take control in the sense of saying, I don't want to die in a hospital. So it's fundamental to choosing when to say no to hospitalization. Are there statistics about how many people there are um, who die at home who have a, a good death as opposed to an institutionalized, medicalized death? Oh, uh, that's a good question because I don't have a statistic. I don't have an accurate answer. I would say a ballpark figure for people who express a preference, elderly patients who express a preference to die at home is on the order of 80 to 90 percent express that preference, but that 60 percent die in an institution and 30 to 50 percent of those are in a hospital. I, I believe one of the more difficult statistics, which I worked out looking at the CDC website to understand is that over 65,000 people of over the age of 85 years die in American intensive care units annually. And that is basically 65,000 people who were misled into thinking some good would come of that last hospitalization or didn't have the foresight to avoid that last hospitalization and paid a very painful price for it. One of your chapters early on in the book is called The, the Median is the Message. And that really opened me up to thinking, just to get the numbers right, of what is life expectancy, what is life expectancy with a particular uh, diagnosis or, or prognosis. And uh, can you explain uh, that a little bit? Because those seem to me to be Wow, good guidelines to recognize. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm at my age is 55, and I kind of don't really even think about particularly how long to go. Um, uh, I, I guess I'd, I, we all have a kind of a fantasy of uh, I'd like to live a long life, very healthy, and then suddenly go in my sleep. But we can't necessarily um, channel that to happen. Uh, but there are other things that that could happen to lead to a good death. And looking at particular our our, our own age, uh, the life expectancy within our demographic, so to speak, and and the prognosis of aggressive care versus palliative care. How do you go about making again? I guess that call. Well, you've touched on several things that I'm desperate to talk about. We'll but we'll probably forget in in order. Um, I'll try to ask is, them again. <laughs> Okay. The first is the median is the message. Uh, that's a riff off of an old, uh, of a very famous essay by a f famous scientist who was diagnosed with a very serious uh, abdominal cancer at the age of 42 or so. And he was given a life expectancy or he, the statistics said he had a median life expectancy of eight months so that 50% of people would die within eight months and 50% shortly thereafter. And uh, I think that if you're 42 years old, uh, the median is not the message. But if you're 65 or older, and particularly if you're 75, 85 plus, the median is the message. Elderly patients will are less likely to outlive the median and certainly not live into a long tail uh, if they have a serious illness. My mother is an example. I remember specifically uh, sitting down with her about a month after she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and having a very, very uncomfortable conversation discussing uh, treatment options and potential hospice care because uh, her life expectancy, 
based on statistics was 10 months. She had a median life expectancy of 10 months. Uh, she was 82 years old, and I looked at her. She was frail and weak, sort of had aged more than we all want to think of ourselves at age 82, but she was, in fact, weak and frail. And I did not think she would live to the 10th month mark. And I told her uh, that her median life expectancy was 10 months. And she said, Sam, are you telling me I'm going to die? And I responded, well, yes, I am. I, I don't know exactly when, but if this apartment was filled with 100 people with your diagnosis, 50% of them wouldn't be here in 10 months. We just don't know which 50% you'll be in. But I think I wrote, and I know I felt, that I didn't expect her at her advanced age of debility to get to uh, the 10-month mark. And indeed, she uh, lived nine months, and uh, but stayed at home and had a peaceful death. Another point that I wanted to touch on based on what you asked is the idea of living vigorously uh, till the end of our lives, which is, of course is our goal. And there's an old medical aphorism. It is a doctor's responsibility to help their patient die young, as late in life as possible. And that's the reflection, as I say, of our desire to live long, vigorous lives and to die quickly, as you said, in our, uh, quickly and not dwindle. And without a lot of pain and suffering. Without a lot of pain and suffering. But the fact is that if we live a long life, we are likely to lose vigor because we will have been saved from the acute illnesses that carry us away at a younger age, and we are likely to be debilitated and weakened by old age and uh, chronic illnesses. Uh, my father's mantra for his last year or two was that he wanted to wake up dead, which was his shorthand for hoping to die in his sleep. And that's not a very good vision, but it is one that many elderly people hold. Uh, we have to work around that. That's a bit of a fantasy vision. Uh, is that right? Uh, being able to die in your sleep, because really that's actually a, an acute as you mentioned in the in the book, an acute situation that would cause that. You're correct. That's the, an acute situation caused on a chronic illness. And the tendency is to uh, treat the acute situations even though the chronic illness is advanced. If people call 911 and get that treatment, they might live or they might not, but they are inviting themselves to be re-hospitalized. Well, let me go back and, if I may, and volunteer the idea of what I mean by a vision uh, of dying, because even though there might be a naivete to the vision, it can be very informative. When I was toying with the idea of writing this book, I wanted to help people make better end-of-life decisions or at least avoid overly aggressive care, but I didn't really know how to frame it up. But it crystallized into a book proposal when I was having a discussion with my father about an aortic aneurysm in his abdomen, a life-threatening enlargement or ballooning of this blood vessel that if it ruptured, it would kill him in a matter of hours or perhaps a day. I was discussing this with him because his internist and three surgeons had told him at the age of 88 that he should undergo extensive surgery to repair this, quote, permanently. Well, I looked at him at 88 and thought this extensive surgery threatened his independent existence, and he wasn't very excited about the possibility of it. But when I proposed a reasonable alternative, uh, catheterization-type treatment, like a cardiac catheterization but with bigger equipment in the lower aorta, to strengthen it, he was ambivalent about that, too. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Sam, why would I want to fix something that's going to carry me away the way that I want to go? Mm. And I was taken aback and I looked at him. But then the light went on in my head and I realized that his vision was to die quickly. His vision was to decline 
emergency surgery and to take palliative pain medicine. And although this vision was kind of an example of the naive vision that I referred to, because you really can't count on this, and it certainly isn't going to happen at a convenient time, and it's going to hurt like heck, it was enough to inform me and my sisters about how he wanted to die and how he could find a certain exit opportunity acceptable. I write in the book that we may not have the opportunity, or only a few of us will have the opportunity to decline surgery for a ruptured aneurysm, but some of us will have the opportunity to decline a pacemaker for heart failure or to decline uh, chemotherapy, a fourth, fifth, or sixth course of chemotherapy for cancer or dialysis for kidney failure. And, and most of us, if we get old enough, we'll have an opportunity to decline antibiotics for pneumonia if we were to choose to go into palliative care, hospice care, and go home and accept that as an exit opportunity. I'm John Schack. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm speaking with Dr. Samuel P. Harrington, author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. More to come. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. Speaking with Dr. Samuel P. Harrington, M.D., his book is called At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. Yeah. I wanted to also ask that declining that sounds like, well, I'll just put it this way to push back, it sounds like you're giving up and part of the human quest, perhaps, uh, I don't know if it's uh, even more emphasized in America, although I think you, you hint at that a little bit, is to fight on at all costs and that somehow saying, no, I'm not going to take this treatment now, is giving up on, on yourself or, or on those who love you, who want you around, and, and all of that. Can, can you talk about the perhaps the, the psychology of that a little bit? Well, yes, some people will interpret that concept of giving up as you're telling patients to go home and die. But what I'm doing is telling them to go home and live, to go home and embrace palliative care and subsequently hospice care, because when you start trading a good day at home for a bad day in a doctor's office or their clinic or a hospital, or you're substituting a good day at home for two bad days of side effects from aggressive treatment, then you've entered a, basically a zero-sum game. And if the treatment that is being offered doesn't offer both prolonged life and improved quality, you've entered this zero-sum game and you should rethink whether you undergo that treatment or not. I really don't want to be tell people to go home and die. I want to tell them to go home and take control uh, of the decisions that they can control. We have uh, some time left, but I really want to get to three things for sure. I want to talk about hospice with you. I also want to talk about uh, what you write in your book about that hard conversation, uh, the important conversation to have uh, with family about the vision and, and whatnot. And I also want to have you say just a little bit about how palliative care, uh, I guess uh, I'll speak for myself. Some might have the idea that, if the doctor says, yes, you need to cure this particular thing, do it aggressively and you'll feel better. But that isn't necessarily the case. Uh, you may not feel better and you might not even live longer. And, and every time there's an invasive procedure, there are always risks and unintended consequences. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Absolutely. Uh, when my father was told that he should have his aortic aneurysm repaired with extensive surgery, uh, the physicians were saying, oh, you have the surgery and you'll be, this will be taken care of forever. Well, my father was 88 at the time, and it was unclear what forever meant at the time. But it was clear to me that if he had the surgery, it would have meant days in the intensive care unit, potentially weeks in the hospital, potentially weeks or months in a nursing home convalescing, and probably after a long convalescence, a long time rehabilitating himself, trying to get back to the independent lifestyle that he had enjoyed to date, and the likelihood that he would be very reduced very rapidly uh, in terms of his independence weighed heavily on us. And there's also the likelihood that he, or the reasonable chance that he wouldn't survive the surgery. So all of those were factored into our thinking. Ultimately, he did undergo the temporary procedure that I had proposed. I twisted his arm by suggesting that I wanted him to meet his first great-grandchild. And he, he did have that procedure, and he lived five more years. Three of them were very good years. He, was, he was, continued to be independent. But two of them were the kinds of years he had hoped to avoid when he became more dependent, and he became reliant on others for his activities of daily living. And the last year, uh, he talked about uh, actively, um, not actively, about passively trying to hasten his death by uh, not seeking uh, further intervention. So when, during the last year, when his uh, internist called him up and told him that the aneurysm was re-expanding, his response was not to have the procedure repeated, but to say, uh, no, thank you, and to thank his doctors and cancel all his appointments. So after that, he did not seek out medical attention and a few months after that, we were able to get him qualified for hospice care. And seven months after that, he passed away quietly at home, having discontinued all the medications that had been prescribed for uh, prolonging his life. So it's that incremental step that I think people can take if they think about it and avoid the kind of aggressive care that might diminish the quality of their life, might shorten their life, and might not help. Let's uh, go and talk about that hard conversation. First of all, what is that, and how do we engage it, and what's its goal? The, the, the hard conversation is designed to share information between a patient and their family so that when a patient is making end-of-life decisions, uh, their family can help them because at least as I describe it, for most elderly patients, they don't make the decisions exclusively on their own. They get input from doctors. They're influenced by doctors. Their, their family is involved. Their families help them analyze what the doctors are telling them. So the family has to know what uh, the patient thinks about their end-of-life choices. This is where you have to have the vision that I mentioned or some understanding of your disease or a general understanding outlining you, the wishes you want your, your family to appreciate about you when you are approaching the end of your life. So most people avoid that conversation as much as possible because it's just nobody wants to talk about the end of their life. My father, who was quite upfront about living and dying, didn't want to talk about it. I'm comparatively used to it and was able to do that as a professional with other with patients but found it difficult with my father but it's just mandatory that people blunder into it and um, promote it because the alternative is so bad uh, letting the medical system uh, move you forward uh, on their test and treat pathway and end up with uh, a medicalized death so I, I think the first hard conversation I had with my father after the discussion about treating his aortic aneurysm occurred when he fell in his apartment and he did not hurt himself 
and he was able to get up. In fact, my youngest sister was visiting, otherwise I might not have heard about this, but it prompted a discussion about um, call buttons, you know, a kind of a, an alert system. How, how do we, do you want to wear a button around your neck so you can call for help? And he wasn't terribly interested in this. He wanted to know about, wanted to know what it would be like to just lie on the floor and die of dehydration. I mean, that's a pretty forward thinking person. So I tried to describe lying on the floor and dying of dehydration. Well, dying of heat dehydration is painless, but lying on the floor is not because that involves sores from the hard floor. And presumably, uh, if you can't get yourself up, it's because you've um, broken something which would be painful or you, there will be some struggling. That was a, another hard conversation, but it it exemplified the fact that my father was looking for an, an exit opportunity and informed us, his family, that should such an opportunity come along, we could accept it. Let's talk about hospice care. This is relatively recent. I mean, with the last 50, 60 years, right? Um, I first heard of it in the, uh, in the 90s. Um, so... Uh, how popular is that? How important is that? Tell me about the hospice care. Well, hospice care, of course, is the philosophy of treating patients exclusively with palliative means, not paying attention to life expectancy, not attempting to prolong life, not attempting to cure an illness, but to address every symptom as best uh, as possible with the goal of optimizing quality of life and, uh, there, and therefore ultimately quality of death. And hospice care is a movement that started in the 50s in, in England and spread across the ocean. And it has been advancing since the 90s. And it is advancing uh, rapid, more rapidly now. But it's not really advancing rapidly enough, in my mind, uh, because not enough people avail themselves of hospice services. But I like to think of hospice, or, and, and let me go back, the, the biggest misconception about hospice is that it's just for the last few days of life. So some, pa some people will have this vision of terminally ill patient lying on a bed covered with beautiful shrouds, uh, surrounded by hovering family and nursing staff and uh, scented candles and classical music. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's not about the last few days of life. I remember a couple of patients coming up to me and saying, Dr. Harrington, I'm, I would consider hospice, but I know I'm not sick enough. Well, if you have any illness, if you have an advanced age, and if you are considering hospice, you are in fact uh, thinking about uh, you are appropriate for uh, thinking about admission. You might not meet the strict guidelines, but you are ready to embrace it when the time comes. And that is a much better approach than waiting until the last few days of your life. We have to keep in mind that the median length of stay in hospice is only about 23 days uh, and Ideally, it should be three to six months to benefit by the opportunities for comfort, closure, trust that can be built uh, around hospice care. I like to think of hospice as an alternative medical system. It protects people from the test and treat standard of care, and it allows hospice professionals have sort of a forward-looking approach to whatever your illness is. So they supply medications and medical equipment in advance of problems and uh, will help prevent 911 calls that sweep you back up into the uh, sort of the momentum of treatment that uh, afflicts our medical system. An example would be if you have congestive heart failure, you will have oxygen in the house before you need it. You'll have a hospital bed, you'll have a bedside commode. So if you get short of breath, you don't have to call 911. You can call for instructions about 
taking some morphine because there will be narcotics in the house. You can call for instructions about starting the oxygen. And then the nurse can come and make an analysis, prevent a, prevent a hospitalization under many circumstances. And hospice is, uh, people might think of the cost, but it's covered, is that right, by uh, Medicare and, and most insurances? It's, it's actually cheaper, really, certainly in the end, than um, just look at the cost of it, than medical treatment, aggressive medical treatment. Correct. Uh, although I'm promoting it exclusively on the basis of the philosophy and the comfort that it affords, and again, uh, the protection that it affords, because I felt once I was able to convince a hospice to accept my father, even though he was not technically within the six-month window of life expectancy that the federal government likes to require and does require, uh, I felt that he was protected from harm, and that gave me some significant comfort. Is the medical profession uh, more accepting of hospice? I, I know a while ago, that many doctors uh, resisted referring patients to hospice? I think the medical profession in general is more accepting, but no physician or few physicians go out of their way to promote it. So if you are seeing a subspecialist for a cancer or congestive heart failure or dementia, it would be the rare subspecialist who says, I think it's time for hospice care. It is much more likely that if you are seeing a geriatrician and you bring up the issue, if you if you are seeing a specialist for a doctor who specializes in old age care uh, and bring up the issue, you will be more likely to be steered to hospice. But if you leave things to the in the hands of the specialists, including my younger self, uh, we would not generally bring up the issue. We would offer you our technical expertise and send you back to your primary care doctors. And and that I don't think has changed uh, very much in the, in the last few years. But there is significant progress in some respects. There are many oncologists, cancer specialists, are now getting board certified in palliative care also. And Palliative care, which is can be performed outside of the hospice setting, that is the, the specialty of palliative care, is also catching on so that symptom control can be dealt with independent of trying to cure a disease and before a patient is in the six-month window of life expectancy that federal regulations require to be certified for hospice. I have one personal question to ask you if you'd like to answer it. What is your vision for a good death for yourself, or if it was for your mother or father, if that's easier? I'm 66-plus years old, so I've aged into the demographic of which I speak. I have um, three children, one lawyer and two doctors. My youngest child is a surgeon, and I have told her uh, in front of my other children, that my vision is to follow the stipulations that I outline in my book, and that includes taking me home when I say so, putting a tray of food in front of me, and not putting the food to my lips unless I ask you to. Huh. Sounds pretty harsh. I'm, maybe you wish you hadn't asked that. No, I don't. <laughs> I, I find that very liberating, actually. <laughs> That's a, a tell me just a bit more about that. What that what what does that signify of putting food on the tray and not to my lips? Well, that means that I um, I don't want to be. I, I know that I am likely to become dependent on others, but I don't want to be dependent on others for an indefinite period of time, and that I don't I don't want them to care for me endlessly, but. If I can't feed myself, uh, I don't want them to feed me uh, unless I specifically say today, give me, you know, bring the food to my lips. I cannot, I will not um, comment on the legalities of that. They're complicated. But in the privacy of my home, I expect that that um, can be affected and that in my book, as the, as occurs in my book, another acute illness will uh, 
supervene and that I can decline treatment for that and I will pass away comfortably at home. And that, of course, is is the goal. Dr. Samuel Harrington has been my guest. A very important book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. Thank you for your work on this and, and for your time with me today. Thank you, John. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm happy to welcome another station carrying Progressive Spirit each week. You can hear Progressive Spirit on KYAQ 91.7 in Newport, Oregon, every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit each week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KACR, Alameda, California, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, and KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well. Be well.